This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are jumping back into The Chosen with the first episode of Season 3. It's good to be back, Marty. It is good to be back. I, I cannot tell you how many times I have been asked in digital spaces on book tour... When are, are are you guys going to do season three commentary? I feel like you should have started by now. When is it coming? And the time has arrived. It's here. And we are very excited. The producers at The Chosen had the audacity to release episodes while you were on book tour. <laughs> so <laughs> I know. I know it. Uh, it took me a while to get caught up, but we managed to do it. I had to wait for my family because they enjoy it so much, but... We're here and we're ready. I will say the dream is to someday perhaps release these episodes much closer, maybe even the week of their release. I don't know. We'll see what we can pull off. But um, yeah, we don't we didn't necessarily intend for it to be such a delay. And, you know, these are bonus episodes. It's not like we have to fit them into uh, the rest of our schedule. So, you know, yeah. That, that's that's the stretch goal is to yep. is to get closer to their release but you know we we do what we can uh we you know i i i joke about their their release schedule like they're obviously not beholden to what our schedule is we can't always <laughs> control what our schedule is and so you know we just do the best that we can but do the best we can it's good to get uh get back into it i i feel like we should just hit that spoiler horn and and uh dive in oh how i missed the spoiler horn hit it okay so we're starting uh a few years earlier um in ad 24 and when we see alpheus um uh, being shaken down by a roman officer that's matthew's dad uh then matthew comes around the corner and kind of He's like, oh, I'll take care of it. And there's this whole awkward thing where the Roman officer is like, yeah, but you told me to. And he's like, uh, yeah, but it's OK. And so, you know, turns out Matthew is their new tax collector and called in the debts of his own parents. And then must have had second thoughts. Yeah. Or based on the conversation, maybe tried to get his dad to do what he thought was the right thing and pay his taxes. But he kind of knew. I couldn't tell if he kind of knew the whole time he was going to be there to bail his dad out or if he sent the 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 tax, whatever, the soldier and then and then had a change of heart. It seemed to me like it was maybe his first I mean, maybe not first day on the job, but like he's pretty new. Yes, sure. And so yep. he, you know, he just he knew it was his parents. Obviously, he knew what the numbers were and everything, but he didn't quite understand what was going to happen. Yeah, that, that, that'd be a that'd be a, a good take. I like the scene and I like the name being Alpheus. Not that they're just because um, we've talked before. It seems like in Jesus's Havara, a lot of these disciples are going to be cousins, second cousins, at least five of them, my teacher Ray told me, were likely um, related as at least first or second cousins. Um, and just the name Alpheus, not that it's the exact same Alpheus that's being referenced when you're thinking about James, son of Alpheus, or those kind of things, but that they're, the names would have been common names within a family tree. Like you would, you would use the same name within three or four generations multiple times. So the fact that there are Alpheuses kind of involved, I thought of all the names they could have chosen, um, no pun intended. That that was a good, that was a good. Uh, I like from my historical perspective, I that made me like perk up there. I was like, yeah, I like that. Yeah, 
Um, so, you know, once his parents realize what's going on and Matthew's like, well, you, you know, you do owe a couple, you, you know, you owe some stuff. He's like, I'll pay it. And he's like, well, it's actually two payments. <laughs> and he's like, you know what? <laughs> you're, you're not a part of this family anymore. You're not my son. I don't have a son. He turns to um, his wife. I cannot remember her name, uh, but he's like, we're you know, get, get prepared. We're going to sit Shiva for seven days. Uh, which I assume that that's the mourning period for a death. Is that right? Yep, it is. Yep. So the son has died in their eyes is the insinuation there. Yep. So, you know, I think Matthew is kind of reeling from that. He he feels like, oh, I'm just doing my job. Like they do owe the money. I did the math right. I'm confident of that. I feel like I've done, you know, I've made good choices to make sure that I going to have what I need in life, blah, blah, blah. And then the whole thing, you know, backfires on him. So, yep. Yep. Relatable. Man, yeah. <laughs> his character has been for so many people that we, you know, I talked to folks, one of the, one of the most relatable characters that they've created with the backstory and, and, uh, no exception here. Yeah. So then Marty, the, perhaps the most glorious moment of season three we cut to Jesus standing not on a stage, but in the middle of a crowd. Uh, you know, you know, Brent, <laughs> I'm not too proud. I, I, when I watched this the first time through with my family, I was so certain that what they were building was a stage. I'm still not entirely sure necessarily even what it necessarily is or was. But the first time I watched it, I'm like, oh, they're not even, they built, they, they spent all this time building a stage, not even using it. And then I realized the second time I watched it through in preparation for the episode, I don't even think it's necessarily even intended to be a stage stage, more of, <laughs> uh, I mean, they they have used, um, I think at some point early in maybe session one, we talk about the idea of, of a flag of, uh, we're talking about Egypt and the gates in Egypt and how the flags point to the God that sits behind the gates of the temple. And so, I mean, they have six, seven, whatever, five, six, seven flags sticking up from this construction that they've made. Um, And 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 when I'm looking at it in the in the move in the in the cinema, I'm like, oh, these are like this would have made the this would have marked the gathering spot. And I then had to reconsider. And there could even be historical background I'm not aware of. Maybe that was a common practice. Maybe you would create some kind of like, you know, this, this, um, you would flag this spot as the, you know, we're we're telling everybody to come find us on this piece of property. Where where are they going to know where to gather? You build this thing so everybody knows, oh, there, we're going to go gather up there. And and at that point, I'm just going to have to eat crow because I was so (laughs) angry because I thought I knew what they were doing. And maybe they're doing something uh, not only historically plausible, but um, but maybe even historically credible. So who knows? But I'm I, I ain't too proud, and I'll I'll take a few <laughs> steps back. I'm either that just bamboozled by chosen that they can win me over that easily, or I'm that big of an idiot that I was so quick to judge in season at the end of season <laughs> two. So there you go. There's there's me backtracking. The way it was portrayed at the end of season two, he does walk out on the stage as if he's about to speak from there. Yes, but, correct. Yeah, I I don't know. I feel I feel like that might be a very generous interpretation, Marty. But uh, at the same time, like yeah, they don't seem to use it at all. 
not in that form. I, I mean, we don't we don't know. Like Jesus in the is in the middle of the teaching at that point. He's talking about um, reconciliation, which you know yeah. fit perfectly with you know the flashback to Matthew. But absolutely. So we don't know how he started. Like maybe he started up on the stage, but and then just just like this is stupid. I'm going to get down with the people, but. I don't know. It, there's there's also no indication that that's what he did. Yeah, you know, you know, one of the most um, commonly asked questions when you when you try to figure out where, you know, where did the Sermon on the Mount happen? And of course, we've posited that it's at Aramos Tapos. I think that's the more popular viewpoint. There's a couple other popular opinions that bounce around out there. But we've talked about our photos that we use in session three and the two hills traditionally where it took place and the Church of the Beatitudes sits on top. And even but even if you like generally say, OK, it happens in this area, you still have this sense of like, OK, but how do people know where to gather? How does that actually work? And so all of a sudden I was going, well, I mean, that's definitely one way to to answer that. And. I suppose it would make some sense. I don't know if you're going to spend that much time and resources on constructing that or not, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it does seem like a lot of work. Um, but Jesus, like at the end of it, when they're, when they're breaking up the crowd and everything, Jesus thanks all of the people, all of the disciples, you know, praises their work, gives them the ironic blessing. And then, and then he's like, and I'm sure you guys will clean this whole place up and make it look as good as new before we leave. Yep. So they're going to tear the whole thing down. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that they did do in season two as they were getting, you know, ready for this sermon as they really played it up as like, this is a like, this is a big moment. This was a big speaking engagement. This was an event. And obviously you could look at that and be like, eh. but uh, on the flips, you, you have one or two perspectives on this. I mean, obviously, a more popular scholarly opinion is that the Sermon on the Mount is more a collection of teachings that Matthew put together, that there was never maybe even a sermon, sermon on a hillside. I, I totally get that scholarly opinion. I, I like to hold to this idea, at least in my mind, um, that there is an event, a sermon. And what I liked about how they built it up was they said this was a defining moment in Jesus' ministry. In fact, in this episode, as Jesus will will kind of leave here at the end of this mega scene, um, he, he kind of leaves to to go away, and I'll have some commentary on that. Um, but it, it almost served as this defining mark. I think we talked about Bible Project's um, opinion about how the Gospel of Matthew is constructed with these like almost like there are these portions and legs of Jesus's ministry where he was striving to get to this point and we did it. We had our, our big thing and now we're going to go take a break together. So at, at least it was put together in a way where it was like, man, there's a few different ways that we could picture this, see this, engage with this idea contextually. And uh, it, it was a new way to frame it for me. I, I did. I did. Cause I kind of view the Sermon on the Mount as like, it just kind of like happened like they were just kind of like a bunch of people were hanging out and Jesus just kind of like got going one day and just gave a sermon. And I, I do like how the chosen invited me to like reframe the intentionality behind the sermon itself, the gathering itself, the event itself, not like a church programming event, but like a, like this was a thing that was planned with a date and a time. And, you know, historically maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but I like how I have been able to like rethink, reframe and reimagine historically how that could have played out. So I like that. Yeah. And when you look at the text of Matthew, I think the way I've always interpreted it is just like, 
wherever Jesus went, there was always like some large crowd as soon as they heard he was there. And like, yep. there's some of that in the chosen yep. as well, where, where people are gathering spontaneously. Um, but it says, you know, large at the end of chapter four of Matthew, it says large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. It's like, okay. Yep. Then at the beginning of five, it says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Does, does that mean, you know, he saw, I don't know, what, what is it? I mean, first of all, what does it mean that he saw them? What way, in what way was he looking at them? Like, was that more of a literal, right. like he saw the crowds right. approaching, right. like, oh, they're gathering now or whatever. Um, but he, right. you know, he saw them. He, he, he saw it. It was intentional. And then he goes up on a mountainside and sat down. Yep. And the way we've talked about the next part, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And our discussion was, well, who is the them? Is he actually yep. teaching the crowd or is he teaching the disciples? Yep. The way it was portrayed in The Chosen, the disciples are at the far back of the crowd, but they're all standing up. But it's like the, the way it's shot, like Jesus is absolutely teaching them. Like he's each each oh, part sure. of it. I mean, we, we went oh, through yeah. that with the Beatitudes in the last season. And throughout this whole thing, like every, even some of the Roman officers and, you know, you know, the thing about love your enemies, like cuts to the shot of the Romans, like, oh, and then goes back to Peter and it's like, okay. Yep. Yep. Uh, so, you know, there's this, everybody's getting something out of this sermon for sure. Yes. 100%. Is Jesus doing it just for the disciples? Would he be saying the exact same things if there was no crowd, if it was just his disciples? I, probably, possibly, I don't know. Yep. Uh, e either way, I think, I think the interpretation that we're seeing is pretty valid to the text. Yep. Like there's enough ambiguity there to look at it a number of ways. So yep. yeah, yep. it's a good way to, to see things differently and reconsider our assumptions. So, and I do love how the content of the sermon is provoking, like that it does keep panning to all these different characters and it is like it's speaking on all these levels. And I'm sure that everybody in the crowd felt the same way too, but particularly the disciples are being, they're not just going like, oh yeah, I've heard all this stuff before. Right. They're like hearing some of these teachings and it's it's provoking them, it's disturbing them. And I, I appreciated that a bunch. Well, and even Matthew's conversation with Mother Mary. Right. Because he, Matthew's heard all these words before. He's written it all down. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but great. then, yeah. but now he's hearing it and and he has new, new light on yep. it. So, yep. It's, uh, it's beautiful. Uh, we did have the credits in there somewhere. So we'll just, you know, throw that music in there just to, just to cover all of our bases. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the, uh, once Jesus is done, the crowd starts to disperse. Uh, Yusuf is standing around, kind of listening to people's reactions uh, to what was going on. Judas finds his friend, mentor, or whatever, Haddad, uh, and quits his job. And he's like, I'm going to go follow this guy. And uh, Matthew uh, makes a comment. He says he recognizes some of Jesus' teachings from those he knows of Hillel. Uh, which is great. <laughs> oh man. Every time, every time the chosen acknowledges that context, I just, I'm just giddy with excitement. Cause again, didn't have to, 
And I love the fact that Matthew's like, hey, wait a minute. I reckon these aren't these aren't brand new ideas. I've heard some of some of these ideas before already. And they come from the just again, I just love that the chosen seems to be so aware and rooted in that piece of context surrounding Jesus's ministry. Um, I love the crowd commenting on authority. Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, and again, and and. Yeah, I just feel like they've written it in such a way that strikes right down the middle. You don't have to hold to like this really like Bema-esque view of rabbinic methodology to just appreciate the fact they're saying he has authority. And yet the way that they're saying it and framing it does still fit within the worldview that I would understand kind of surrounds this early Second Temple Ju- Judaism and, and the rabbinic method, the little r rabbinic method. So I, I just really like those comments. I, I think I see in Yusef and Yusef. Uh, um, for for me, I was like I, I I could you could see in season two Yusef like kind of turning. Um, he's not antagonistic, but this was like a defining opening of season three. Like I'm like, well, how, what is his reaction as he hears these people saying these things? And it wasn't a defensive mouth aghast it was more again curious and i'm like okay yusuf is on he's definitely on a track where he's more open he's more curious and he's listening and so uh, i like that too and it kind of only gets better from there judas goes up and introduces himself to jesus as judas of Cariote, and i was like oh yep. my gosh yep uh he starts to give his qualifications and then jesus's response to that is says i only require what other rabbis do that you seek to be like me I'm like, yes. One of my favorite. Yes. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Again, caught me by surprise. Would not have expected that to show up in a production like The Chosen. And I don't think they'll make too big of a deal out of it. Probably not enough of a deal for me. But the fact that they make any kind of a deal out of that and and, and said it in that way. This is what any rabbi expects. This isn't just a Jesus thing. This is what the rabbinic thing is doing. And golly, I love that. I just love that statement. I love the humanity of the interaction between Jesus and Judas. It's so hard for us, I think, not seeing Jesus and Judas in the abstract, like Jesus is God and Judas as the betrayer. But like, I, I have to get myself to work to remember there was a human element and a human relationship between rabbi and disciple that I don't think was always shrouded in this foreknowledge of Judas being the great betrayer and Jesus only seeing a betrayer when he looked at Judas. Like, Jesus saw Judas. Jesus saw a Judas that had not betrayed him. He saw a Judas who did want to praise God, who whatever, whatever, whatever. Um and and I like that. And obviously, my my backstory for Judas would be different. I think I would pose him as a zealot. Uh, they don't. And yet again, I, I appreciate one of the things I appreciate about the chosen because of their ability to couch this in so much historical context and historical awareness. And I can, on some level, trust that. I'm able to, again, like I said about, you know, the the sermon and the stage and those kind of things, I'm able to reimagine, reconsider, which is healthy because otherwise I lock my brain into, there's only one option, in my opinion, Judas is a zealot, there's, you know, whatever. And, and I, one of the things I like about The Chosen and their backstories and all this kind of extra biblical content 
is it enables me to open my mind to, okay, people are complex. Karyote could have even been a zealot compound and Judas might not have been. He might have left Karyote to go start a lucrative business because he didn't want it. Like there are so many complexities to who we all are as human beings. None of that would have been lost in the biblical characters. So while I think I can make some biblical historical assumptions, those assumptions are only that assumptions. And I like reimagining who some of these characters could be when they don't necessarily fit with what my own personal assumptions have been up to this point. So Judas is one of those. Like at this point, I'm I'll see like there's a lot of ways that the Judas story could take a weird turn at this point. And, you know, having watched all through season three, I'm like I'm in it on the Judas narrative. Like I'm like I'm tracking. It's kind of like Peter. I wouldn't have done Peter's backstory, but love how it's working out. So, yeah, there we go. Well, and Judas, we don't know that much about yet. Um, but I think like one, the thing that makes the Sermon on the Mount w- so effective is that we have two seasons of character building for all of the other disciples. And so when Jesus says all those lines, we know exactly what's going on with all of these people. Sure. And so I don't I don't expect it to be any different with Judas. Like, I think they're just going to yep. develop this character yep. really well. That Like the intention that they put yep. into it, I'm, like, I have total total faith that it's going to, that's going to be good. Like, yeah, there's four, four seasons. I mean, we're barely into season three, but there's four more seasons after this, like this, uh, you know, there's always a chance that it's going to go sideways, but I just don't see that happening. So, yep. Yep. Um, so then we have Joanna approaching, uh, the women and she offers a gift. They're like super skeptical about what's going on. Um, but I was wondering, like, is this, is this how she would have supported the ministry without, raising too many eyebrows like she's not just grabbing a chest full of you know gold and silver coins and dropping it off like she's like okay well i'm just gonna you know i'm I'm wearing this scarf out and you know what while i'm out i'm just gonna just drop it with these people and it's like oh this is the nicest uh fabric in in the world (laughs) we could sell this for a lot of money like is that is that how that support would have happened? You think or like what? It's it's entirely possible. A, a the culture is far more of a barter economy. Um, I mean, obviously they had coins, they had money and currency, but I think they're far closer to a barter economy than we are used to today. I do believe, like as I saw the as I saw that scene and heard that scene, I think it was like, yeah, this is what I have on me. I just heard this message. I'm totally moved. I didn't come with a load of coins. I am going to support. And I hear her say that like financially. I think Luke 8 uh, verse 3 tells us she supports financially. And I think that is going to come in a more monetary form. But you could easily have gifted to ministries in that way. It's entirely plausible. And I, I totally like that. And I loved Tamar recognizing, you know, the is this whatever she said, you know, yeah, Shushana cloth or whatever she said. And I was like, oh, golly, that's so I just like the character interaction. there. <laughs> the other thing she said that was interesting, she works in, I think it's Macaris. Yeah, that's one of Herod's three fortresses. So, yeah. Uh, and then obviously she's married again, according to Luke 8, 3, she's married to Herod's uh, treasurer, secretary, clerk. I can't remember what the actual term word is, but um, and so Herod, we know that Herod. Um, And this isn't Herod the Great. This would be Herod's son. Um, And this would be uh, Boy Macarus. Would that be? So I I looked it up. I wasn't aware of where this place was. It's on the east side of the Dead Sea. Yep. 
Um, it's Jericho is where it is. Yeah. So it was destroyed at some point and Herod the Great rebuilt it. But then it went, Correct. it got passed on to uh, Herod Antipas, is that? Yeah, it should right be Antipas. Yeah. yeah, and that's where, yeah, uh, Ray used to take groups to Machaerus. I'm almost positive I never was on there in any of my trips, but he often will take groups to Machaerus. It's right outside of Jericho, so um, it's a spot that you can get to today. Yeah, it has been excavated to some extent. Um, I'll, I'll just throw yes. the link to the Wikipedia page in there because it's pretty interesting. Uh, but the historical location of John's... John the Baptist imprisonment and execution, according to Josephus. Yep. Uh, Josephus has, you know, a, a big old chunk of text dedicated to describing the place. So, um, yeah, pretty interesting spot. Yep. So Joanna's talking, um, and I, I, I don't know. It just seems weird that the women are all like so skeptical about who she is because they, they also seem like so welcoming in general. So I don't know. The skepticism was a little weird. Yeah, I had some tension in my notes at that. At that scene, A, I liked it because it was <laughs> it was just so human. Like, here's an outsider trying to get to the teacher. Like, we saw Peter do some of the same things earlier on in the ministry in season one and two. He was really protective of who are you and why are you trying to get to Jesus? And we're going to... Um, I did feel like the danger of that episode, it was, it was very, like, stereotypical women, like, um, you know, just like women being catty and, you know... And and I was like, ah, oh, probably isn't going to necessarily come across or play super well. But I did appreciate the humanity of the defensiveness, um, especially with somebody with a whole bunch of wealth and influence. Uh, they're just trying to get, you know, get a word with Jesus because they think they're different or something special. I thought there was a lot of humanity in that. and But there were some some interesting tensions in there. Yeah. And maybe they were just skeptical of her response, like... Yep. Everyone else gets up and they're just like, whoa, that was crazy. Like, we're just going to go wander off and kind of process what we heard. And she's just like, I'm going to go talk to Jesus and just, you know, makes a beeline for it. So, you know, I, I get it. Like, yep. you make, you make snap judgments in the moment, but, um, yep. yeah. Anyway, uh, and they do process through that later. So it's, you know, an ongoing concern, I guess. But, um, Andrew comes up and finds out that she's, you know, aware of what John has going on and, and, uh, wants to know how he's doing. Jesus comes up and talks to Joanna and John wants Jesus to visit him in prison. And Jesus is like, well, you know, how about Andrew goes? And, um, Jesus tells Andrew that he should rest, but acknowledges that it might be easier to do that after seeing John, which I thought was just like a, uh, a beautifully human set of emotions and, and things there. Like, yeah, this is the ideal, but I see, you know, what's going on in your heart. I see your concern. I see your fear. And, you know, realistically, he's able to go see John and, and Jesus knows John's going to say what he needs to say and get Andrew, you know, back on track. So, well, and personally, I love the humility of Jesus not being afraid. Like he trusts, and I get that John's his cousin, maybe even his teacher or whatever, but like, even still, like there's clearly at this point, they've established that there are some differences between John's agenda and Jesus's agenda, John's worldview and style and method and Jesus's worldview and style and method. And Jesus is still like, yeah, you should go, you should go see him. There's no like, I don't know if you go see John, maybe he's going to mess up what we've been working on. They're like, there's no defensiveness. There's no, just, just total trust. And I was like, man, I want to learn from that as a leader. Yeah. And, and Peter is, um, concerned about Andrew going there. Um, 
and Andrew's like, you know what, you know, you've done such a great job, like keeping, keeping us all safe. And like, there's just, you know, <laughs> coming out of the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of, there's a lot of like personal relational reconciliation, uh, a lot of empathy going on, a lot of, uh, you know, making up for past whatever. Um, and I think that's just a, just another moment where, where Andrew gets to tell his brother, like, yeah, you know what? I, I, I understand that you're concerned. I really appreciate it. By the way, I just, I just really appreciate what you do for us in general. Like I see you, I see the value in it. Yeah. Peter, Peter responds in kind, go back to Andrew, like everybody is, they're flying off of this, like summer camp sermon on the Mount high. <laughs> yes. I'm sure this will fix all their relationships. I'm sure there will be for the next four seasons, nothing but harmony um, but again, how true is that to a lot of our experiences where even in our churches and our faith communities, we go through something, it's defining, it's shaping, we we call ourselves together, we grow and develop, and then we're humans and we struggle again. And so I, I, I did appreciate everybody is just like, and and we're getting ahead of ourselves in the episode, but everybody is like, I, I need to ask for your forgiveness and I need to make amends and... <laughs> Absolutely. Go Jesus. So uh, we see Thomas and Rama have an awkward conversation about planning a visit and, you know, pl- plenty of uh, plenty of things to talk about there, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then Jesus leaves, which is, again, another one of those things where I've never imagined uh, portrayed in my own teaching that that's how I operate with Jesus. I, I've always kind of assumed that Jesus called these disciples. They were basically on the road all the time, 24-7 with Jesus for like three years. Not that they never saw their family or never, ever, ever got a break. Um, but I always pictured they being with Jesus on those breaks, being with Jesus. And now a couple times over the course of the last two seasons of The Chosen, they have definitely portrayed Jesus sending them home and being away for a chunk of time. And there's going to be a lot of season three where you know, that's, so that's a different, that's a different take. And again, one of those things that's enabled me to reimagine there's, there's nothing that, that insists that that had to happen that way, but there's nothing that insists that it didn't happen that way. And so I've just sat here and went, yeah, okay. And reimagined what those interactions could have been like. It's the beauty of art done well. It, uh, when it stays true to what we have and what we don't have in the text, um, it's it's good to help us reimagine and rethink some things. So, yeah, one of the things that I uh, have thought about wanting to ask um, Dallas or the other writers is like, do you prefer it when uh, when a character just isn't in the text at all and you can make them whatever you want, or do you like it when there's just a little bit of detail but you have a lot of freedom to like. Yep. explore some other things or do you or is it easier when you have somebody like like Simon where you can yeah you know you basically have his whole story so great question someday perhaps um so then we see Yusuf uh coming into the synagogue he meets Jairus who's the new synagogue administrator their conversation felt like really stilted and I don't know if that was like the intentional portrayal or if the actors were just kind of like having an off moment because I don't feel like their portrayals are that stiff in general, but that initial conversation, and maybe it was just them like as characters feeling each other out. Well, I'll tell you what it did for what it did to me. Um, and this could be intentional. And again, I might just be being super generous here, but 
I could not tell at the end of these first couple scenes with them together whether or not Jairus was, is this somebody I can trust or not trust? Yeah. Um, there's not enough in the biblical text for me to assume what Chosen's going to do with it. And so he's like, you know, he, he's talking to him about his notes and his manuscript, and it is kind of stilted. I, I interpreted that because y- Yusuf doesn't know there's this new guy, like he wants, it's a synagogue ruler, so he wants him to be, you know, wants to have a good relationship, but doesn't know if he can be trusted. Like when you're where Yusuf is, the general status quo in his pharisaical worldview is most people aren't going to be people you're going to trust. Here's this new person in a position of influence. And honestly, the because of that way that scene was done, and maybe maybe a couple scenes, maybe even, like I wasn't sure. Like it's gonna be later where he's like, You can keep your manuscripts in the safe that I have here, and nobody will see it. And I'm like, oh man, this guy's trying to get Yusuf in trouble. Like that's what I thought the whole time until later in the episode. And and then still didn't even know until later in the season. So uh, that's how I perceived that. I, I know what you're talking about. It was like awkward and very, but I felt like it was those two characters trying to figure out who are you? Can you be trusted? Do I trust you? What's our relationship going to be? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that makes more sense. Um, I mean, we know Yusuf a little more than Jairus at this point, like Jairus, we don't yes. we're seeing for the first time. So it's, I didn't know what, what his character was going to be like. And I, I think, you know, we go on to see like, it had to have been intentional, but it just it just struck me the first time I saw it as like being a very strangely yes. Yes. awkward conversation. Yep. Um, Yusuf's talking about how he needs ink. Um, Jairus is like, we don't have anything. Uh, he Jairus also says he he's good at bringing uh, order amidst chaos, and I was like, well, that's a funny way to phrase that. And again, I didn't know what he meant, like. He's this heavy-handed <laughs> right, synagogue right. authority, or a dip. And he said diplomat, and I'm like, oh, okay, maybe he's more. But is he slimy diplomat? Right. Is he strategic, compassionate? I still didn't know. Yeah. And Yusuf is kind of like saying, you know, I had this weird experience listening to this thing, and I, I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet, but I feel like I have to document it. And uh, and then that's when Jairus says, oh, you know, I've got the cellar where you can let some documents cool down. And uh, I, th- I thought about our meeting that we had the other day where you sent me an email and it didn't come in for five minutes because you have the delayed send feature on. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, that was beautiful. <laughs> delayed send for documents. Uh, it was, yeah, like that. it was, we see later it was addressed to Nicodemus. That's, a, that's what I was assuming at when, you know, when I very first thought of like, who could he be writing these for? My gut told me Nicodemus, so it was good when I saw that later. Rabbi Nicodemus of the Jerusalem Sanhedrin is what it said. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So that was that was fun. Um, yeah, and when, when he does end up giving the letter to him, Jairus is like, hey, this isn't even sealed. And Yusuf is like, nope. Yes, yep. Kind of like, uh, yep. why don't you read it? Tell me what you think. Yep, and that's where I felt like, oh, okay, now I know where Jairus is at. I know where Yusuf's at. I know where the relationship is at. But it wasn't until that moment where I felt confident. In that. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So then we kind of have a little bit of a montage of everybody going back to their home. Simon and Eden enter their home. And of course, they're almost immediately interrupted. Nathaniel's there. Eden's <laughs> hospitable. Simon is not. <laughs> uh, and then Z shows up. So it's like, okay, we got a whole crowd going on here. Um, yep. Big James is telling John how excited he is to get home and have Ema's cinnamon cakes. And 
then Thomas joins them and then their dad comes out and is like, Oh, uh, Emo went to the market. She realized she didn't have any cinnamon. And he's just like, ugh. Yep. <laughs> All of my dreams. Then we have, uh, this is when Tamar and Rama and Mary get to her home and they're continuing their conversation, um, about, uh, Joanna and trying to figure out like what her deal is. Yep. Um, also, okay. Okay. So one other thing in the scene that was, I mean, this is kind of throughout, but there's like all of these conversations as people are getting home, like Nathaniel, when he comes to Simon and Eden's house, he's like, yeah, you know, I was going to stay in this other place, but there's three people and they're like totally on top of each other. And like the, the ladies get into Mary's home and they're like, yeah, it's kind of small, but you know, it's intimate. It'll be warm. And I just feel like what I I feel like the way we've talked about it before is that there's going to be tons of people in these households. Like the, the concept of like personal space and being on top of each other. And Nathaniel's like, Oh, I heard you had an extra room uh, that your mother-in-law was in. And you know, like he, like he's going to get a whole room to himself. Like I, it just seems crazy to me that all of these people are so concerned about the personal space. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're probably right on that. I think that's probably a production choice to maybe con- allow us to connect with them maybe without overdoing it. Uh, yeah. I, I had some of the same thoughts, like the spaces that the spaces that I see portrayed in the movie, which they, not that they could even be smaller to be able to do the scenes well, but I mean, they're, they're big. Those are big rooms. Um, those are actually big spaces. Uh, but they're also not like gaudy big or, uh, unbelievably big they're, they're they're just on the larger sides of normal so yeah i thought i thought these would be more normal i bet they still had some of the same human impulses if somebody did have an extra room i'm sure they would prefer that sure yeah sure. Uh, but probably not with the same it's probably <laughs> like somewhere in between they're probably shooting the gap so that we can relate uh as a production perhaps and maybe as well with the uh, like we, I think we've talked about before, like, uh, did we talk about this? Um, where, you know, you have, you have a house and there's like one room where everybody sleeps in. And then there's another room where it's like, okay, you know, one of the married couples gets to go in that room, you know, tonight. And then the next night it's going to be somebody yep. else and they kind of trade off. Yep. And there's, there's just not the awkward yep. taboo. Yeah. You know, nature of the conversation, like it's just going to be. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if Nathaniel would necessarily need to leave the house. Like, I I don't know exactly what the dynamic was. Yeah. But uh, I think it would not be as awkward to talk about it. And like, I don't know, Eden was a little bit embarrassed when Nathaniel acknowledged he knows what they're saying and whatever. Uh, Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Probably another one of those things that I'm reimagining and it's definitely been portrayed to me by my teachers and historians in a particular way. But I mean, who knows? We know very little for sure, but yeah, it probably was a little different. I did think about that. And I thought, of course, if they would have portrayed it in the, in the chosen, the way that I see it, the audience would have like, totally, you would have had to have done so much work trying to explain that. Yeah. Cause the audience would have been like, why are there 70 people in this house? Sure. Um, <laughs> so I was like, okay, yeah, totally, totally get that. And, <laughs> they probably would have been even more weirded out if Nathaniel was like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll just, like, I'll just be gone for the next few hours or whatever like that. 
that probably would have been even weirder for the audience. So, well, Judas seems like he has a pretty nice house. Um, interestingly, he's, he's gathering some things from it, uh, including a plant <laughs> and he goes and visits his sister, kind of shares what he's doing with her. Looked very similar to Matthew's joint, by the way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely that level of like house. Um, and yeah, he gives his sister, uh, the deed to the house and it seems like his, uh, their parents are dead. Um, and she makes some comments like, you know, you haven't always made the best choices. The house that you invested in certainly hasn't increased in value. I'm like, what? I mean, what? seems like a pretty nice house. Like how bad could it be? But whatever, you know, she has, she has concerns as, as the, I, I guess she's the big sister. And, uh, you know, he's like, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, and then, and then we see a little bit of Judas's like miss understanding of who Jesus is. And he says, if he is the anointed one, yeah, he will not be killed. He will defeat the Romans. Yeah. There's a whole lot of, uh, yeah. Futuristic winks and, uh, about Judas himself, about Jesus and all of that. I thought, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, well-played dialogue here. Um, I have a scene in between this too, where, uh, there, yeah, there is, I kind of, I kind of skipped over. Yeah. All right. So Joanna and Andrew, they arrive at the prison, um, and Joanna bribes the guard to be quiet. So it's like, you know, obviously she does have access to money to some extent. The guard is very happy to, uh, take that money and pretend that they were never there. Um, so Andrew is expressing his concern, um, and, and John is just saying, you know, you just gotta, you just gotta focus on Jesus. Don't worry about what's going on with me. And Joe, uh, John asked Joanna what she thought about Jesus. He's like, you know, I, I don't even care that you had a chance to talk to him. I want to hear what you thought about, you know, what he said. And she's like, oh my gosh, it was so crazy. Everything was backwards. Like, you know, you love your enemies and blah, blah, blah. Um, so John's super excited about hearing the topics that Jesus spoke about, super excited about how many people were there to hear it. Um, and Andrew wants to help John and here's, here's another misunderstanding moment. Um, Andrew's like, Hey, I want to get you out of here. I want to do what I can to help you. And John quotes Isaiah 61, you know, freedom for the prisoners. We've talked about that before. Another, another wink at the future. We know what's coming there. And then John tells him, you know, if you really want to help me, Go home and do what he says. Yeah, I love that moment. My, and my favorite line of what he says, you have a new rabbi now, the rabbi. I was like, ah, it's well played. And fits John's character. Other things he said, I must decrease, he must increase. I was like, that's a very John the baptist position. Consistent. I liked it. And I love that Like when, when they first walk into the prison, John is kind of lying there and just kind of... Uh, I don't know if he's staring up at the ceiling. I don't know if there's a window up there, but he's, he's just looking up. It seems like he's in prayer. Um, I, I guess you could also read it as he's just like kind of out of it. Yeah. <laughs> probably hungry, probably tired, whatever. But, yeah. but I, I read it as, you know, he's, he's in prayer. He's, he's not focusing on where he is. He's focusing on, yep. you know, who God is and what, what God is doing outside of the walls of where he is. And, and he's just not, like he's not concerned and he's right. Like yep. the prison doesn't, the prison walls don't mean anything yep. to Jesus. Like that doesn't. So he's right in some extent. Yep. He's, he's misguided in that Jesus doesn't intend to get him out of prison because that's not, he's not doing things the way John thinks he is. But, 
but John is right. Yeah, no, I, I, it's hard for me to relate because I'm sure I never, I'm never in those same situations <laughs> where I'm right, but also wrong. Yeah, I, absolutely. How many times that must be true where we get it and we have no idea what it means to get it. So, yeah. All right. So closing out, um, Closing out the episode, we have Andrew arriving at Mary's house and apologizing for what he said. We have Matthew returning to his home, um, you know, presumably to reconcile with his parents. I don't know exactly what he has in mind as he's going there, but he he addresses his father as Alpheus, and Alpheus looks at him and addresses him as son. And whew, yep. I th- <laughs> Uh, once again, I watched this a second time. I knew it was coming. Yep. It's even happening right now as I talk about it. He just says the one word, and I just yep. cannot help but yep. start weeping. <laughs> it's just so beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of my favorite lines that ha- that came when Andrew was talking to Mary, I wrote it down because I thought it was so... Things... Uh, let's see. I got the direct quote here. Things are better now, huh? Like, I just thought... Man, that they haven't been at this for long. And the other thought that came to mind as I made some notes about that is like these earliest followers, and I'm not even talking about the early church. I'm talking about like the people that just kind of followed Jesus during his ministry, maybe right after his death and resurrection. Like these earliest followers, like they, they were just following some of the simplest. They didn't have systematic theology. They didn't have... They weren't going to argue about the Trinity for another 300 years. They like, they were <laughs> right. just listening to like, go apologize to people, like go seek forgiveness and forgive others. Like the things they're putting into practice are some of the most practical, simple things. They don't even do it well. Again, it's another, like they get it, but they don't get it. They screw it up in the very next scene, but, but they're, but they're, they're in the pro like, Theologically, would say they're in the process of sanctification. Like they are growing, they're spiritually evolving. And I love that line of like, man, just a year into this, you know, things are better now. Like when I think back, things are better now today than they were, huh? And Mary says, yeah, they are. Like that's it. Like it's it's the simple stuff. It's the practical stuff that if a community of faith just trusted in some of the most practical, simple love each other, love one another type things. Uh, I think we'd look back over a, you know, a significant period of time and be like, man, things are better in the spirit of God. (laughs) Uh, We are better. Like life is better. We are a better people and group of people because of what Jesus has taught us. So I just love that line. I thought it was really great. And I think this is the advantage of the chosen, the way they're doing it. Like, you know, there is still a limited amount of time, like seven seasons sounds like a lot, but there's also a lot of, a lot of stuff. I keep trying to figure out how they're going to do it. I think, I think they're staying on track, but I'm like, man, I don't know how you're pulling this off in seven. Yeah. It's so, you know, there's, there's obviously some shortcuts here and there, but I love that they take the time to do this stuff because in Matthew, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's just like, oh, Jesus came down from the mountain and large crowds followed him. And like, he just goes on to doing other stuff. But if we don't actually apply these words, what what good is it? Right. Yep. So to to see them take the time and say, oh no, not only yep. like yep, like Jesus spent all of this time teaching this stuff. Yep. And they didn't they didn't know everything. It wasn't perfect. 
but they got it. They realized that they needed to do something and they go and do it. And, you know, yes, it's not always going to be as simple as we see it. Like, you know, it's not always going to be Matthew showing up and, and his father just immediately accepting him back in that moment. It might take more work than that. Right. But that's what you have to do. And, and sometimes I would say even many times it is that simple if you just do it. Yeah. If you don't do anything at all, nothing's ever going to happen. And, but most of the time it just, if you, if you show any effort at all. Yeah. Uh, it's just, uh, yeah. And you're absolutely right about, you know, that's the beauty of the art of, of just, you know, when you're, when you're creating art surrounding biblical narrative, what the chosen has done, you know, cause the, uh, the critique is like, well, that's not in the Bible. That's all made. Well, yeah, but that's the whole point of creating this art is helping us operate our imagination and basing this and rooting this on stuff that absolutely is in the text and giving us completely historically plausible, um, practical, realistic ways to connect with the application of this stuff, um, which is the beauty of the backstories done well. And they can be done poorly. Like they could have done all this backstory just for the drama, just for the, you know, but these are strategically planned storylines that enable us to see the impact of the gospel community on each other. And, and you're right. I mean, that's the, that's why, that's why I've completely not had a problem when we take three episodes at times to do all this non-biblically, you know, it's not in the biblical text, but there's all this backstory because there's payoff for that because it's helping me understand what is in the biblical story, not in its historicity, not in its historicity, not in its historicity, but it's helping me imagine the application of these things that we study in the abstract. So I do love that. Well, and the beginning of this episode, without all of the character development, could have just been a dramatic reading of the Sermon on the Mount. Yep. And it would have, it would have, we would have been in the same lullaby effect that we've been in the whole time. Yep. But then you see this portrayal and it just totally breaks you out of it. And it's like, oh, Yep. Human relationships have had the same issues forever. <laughs> like the stuff that we're dealing with today, some of the details are a little different, but at the end of the day, we're dealing with the same stuff that they were. We have the same challenges, the same struggles. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. You got it. I think that the hope is just that people will see that and be inspired to to live out these words in a new way that they've never done before. Amen. All right. That's our first episode. Pretty Pretty good one pretty good one pretty good opening when i left season two i was so in the air what's the opening of season three gonna be like and i was pleasantly surprised and satisfied good work all right so go to bamonestablishment.com for all the details about the show uh as as we talked about before like go to the contact page that's the best way to get a hold of us whatever the most recent most up-to-date way to get in touch is going to be on that page whatever it is whenever you were listening to this that is the place um, and then, uh, yeah, everything else is there. Check out the show notes. Um, check out the Macaris place. It's, it's, uh, yeah, pretty interesting spot. Like, I think we know more about that than we do some other places. Um, it is in Jordan. So, you know, I've never been to Jordan, Marty. If you want to, yep. if you want to take me there sometime, I wouldn't be opposed to it. Okay. But usually we go there when we can't, you know, yeah, get out right. of the country otherwise. So yeah, it's a it's a little bit of a bittersweet reason to go to Jordan, but you know, just you know, if it happens, you know, it'd be <laughs> sure make for an interesting trip. Anyway, uh, yeah, that'll do it for this episode. Thanks for joining us on the Baywatch Podcast. We will talk to you all again soon. <laughs>